This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast and many congratulations to the latest winner on the ATP 500 series. Oh, that's brilliant. He needs some inspiration like that now, Rublev. Just his third backhand winner of the final. Nikolas Basilashvili retains the title in Hamburg. He came here 12 months ago as a qualifier ranked outside the top 80 and took the title. He's come back this year and he has not relinquished his grip on the trophy. 7-5-4-6-6-3, the Georgian wins his third Tour 500 title. Congratulations, Nicolas. Hamburg champion for the second year in a row. You said coming into this you weren't thinking about defending the title, but just how much does it mean to you? Uh, it means a lot. It's uh, definitely it's for the confidence. It's a uh, it's very good plus. Then definitely I was come coming here very relaxed. Um, after Wimbledon I took took a bit rest, so that may, that may be paid off. Also I was uh, fresh and uh, really happy that I got my third day to find titles. It means a lot to me for sure. You said it's good for your confidence. You've come through some really tough matches this week, yesterday especially. What's been the best bit for you this week? Um, yesterday was extremely tough match. How I was able to come back in tie-break in the third set. It was incredible, something from me. Also in the down-break and the third set. So um, I had uh, pretty good matches here. I will take a lot of credit and learn from, from a lot of matches. I, um, yeah, and... Then we'll see. I'm, uh, I will take a bit rest now and get ready for Canada. Nikolas Basilashvili of Georgia making it two titles in a row in Hamburg. And away from the final, we had the chance to spend a bit more time with Basilashvili and his coach, Jan de Witt. Nikolas Basilashvili hits the big time in Hamburg. This makes a big difference when you get the title. I had previous coming up to Hamburg, I had two finals, so uh, title changed everything, especially 500 ATP. Gazilashvili, utterly brilliant in Beijing. And then uh, I won Beijing, so that was also, I think, uh, it played a big role that I won here. It gave me a lot of confidence. I think that you can see development in many, many areas with Nico in the last... 12 months since we won here last time. Uh, we have been working a lot on physical things lately and we have been working on some technical things. Uh, we worked a lot on his surf lately. We worked on the general approach of the game. Playing top 10 players is, uh, and beating them is really important. We try to repeat what we did last year, but it's more that we try to play new matches, good matches win matches, score points, and then we're going to see if, if we can get really far as last year or maybe not. I think I'm playing a very good tennis still, um, and I'm still working really hard. And uh, let's see how it's, how it's going to go. Oh. 
really interesting journey coming coming to here. Um, I had a lot of uh, ups and downs in my in my life and in my career. And uh, when I was uh, 20, 21 years old, I had um, I started I almost started playing tennis from from zero um, because I was really mentally down. And uh, I've been uh, moments where I. Yeah, me and my father, we would sleep in the car and the tournaments a couple of weeks. Even we, we had some moments that we sleep like one month continuing living in the tent in some tournaments. So these kind of things it may really makes you want to prove that uh, these this, uh, bad times has not been passed um, for nothing, you know, and that those, these things are is making me very stronger. And tennis, uh, confidence and experience is uh, playing a lot of role and uh, I needed to take those steps. That was another step in my career that I had to win ATP title if I wanted to play good. And uh, winning Hamburg, uh, I had two chances to win ATP title. It just stays in your head, you know, even when you're finalist two times, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit tough, you know, to believe you go on court and finals and uh, to believe in yourself that you can win it. Now uh, I'm, I'm playing very good. I, I really like as I'm playing. And most important is I'm relaxed on court and I'm really enjoying it. I could not believe it. You know, I was like pinching myself if I was dreaming or no, because I had a lot of times, a lot of times dreaming that I was, I, I was winning ATP title. Then I was waking up and it was just a dream. The other big news this week in Hamburg was world number five Sasha Zverev splitting with coach Ivan Lendl and also the timing of Lendl's announcement. I mean, I was a little bit surprised that he did it during a tournament, which uh, I thought it wasn't, wasn't great. But look, I have, I have nothing but respect for him. We worked uh, well for 10 months. Um, it's, been, it's been very nice um, having him on my side winning London. Um, obviously, I have great respect for him, um, but I mean, we, as you guys probably know as well, we both felt like um, we were going different directions. And um, as I said, I wish him nothing but the best. And I, I think he'll find a player uh, very soon. And um, it's also about personalities and maybe we didn't fit yet. And uh, maybe it will change, but uh, for now it's over. He is searching for another player, maybe. And what about you? Are are you also searching for another co coach, or just I have to the stay with your coach. father? No, I have the best coach there is. I'm very happy with him for now. <laughs> so Alexander Zverev, senior, set to continue for now as his son's head coach. Hamburg was the last of the ATP 500 events on clay this year. There were also titles and points at stake at ATP 250 level in both Atlanta and Gestad, and you can head to atptour.com for all the latest news, results and video from all of those events and also from the American hard courts as we now turn our attention to the US Open series. Over the next month or so, we'll be at the Rogers Cup in Montreal and the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati, both ATP Masters 1000 events. We'll also have live coverage of the US Open, courtesy of US Open Radio, but our live commentary from America starts this week in Washington, where some of the world's leading players are competing for the City Open title. And ATP Uncovered's Gabriel Clark has been taking a closer look at one of them in particular. 
every one-on-one -on -one sport is all about mentality because in team sports, well, you have a team around you, you have 10 more guys that can help you out. I mean, you support each other. I think it's a bit different. And one-on-one, -on -one, it's only you against your opponent. It's a really tough sport. Every week is tough and you need to be strong. Daniel Medvedev has made a rapid ascent into the top 15 of the ATP rankings over the last 12 months. The Russian has improved all aspects of his game, highlighted by an added emphasis on his psychological approach. Every tournament that you play to win it, you need to win five matches against five real guys. And other than that, there are 32 guys in main draw. All of them want to win this tournament. You need to be stronger than them and because it's a lot of matches, you need to be stronger than them mentally also. You need to break each of these guys mentally every match and that's really tough. And especially in semi-finals or finals where you play top players and they try to break you and they are better at it. Yeah, I think it's just an experience because uh, before when I was younger I almost didn't even have a tennis coach. Then step by step I understood that, okay, I need to have a tennis coach around me almost all the time. Then I understood that my physical is totally not good enough because I was cramping uh, almost every tough match I play, so I started working hard on it. Took one guy that uh, would be not only the physical coach, but would be working on just my general physical conditions. Then I understood, well, it's helping me a lot, so I need to find something more to, to be even higher. And uh, that's how I came uh, to work with a mental coach. He needs to find some parts inside you or just of you that will help you to be the best on the tennis court. So it's tough to say, it's not that he's just working on me to not be crazy and uh, to not uh, break a racket. In fact, uh, maybe sometimes I need to do it. So he needs to decide what I need to do at any moment of the match. And I need to know it by myself that, okay, this moment when I lost this point, probably I need to scream or I need to stay silent and stuff like this. Of course, it's not that easy as it sounds, but it's of course more that uh, he asks questions because, well, it's his job and he knows how to do it if you trust him. Because at the moment that I trust him, uh, it's just that it's more uh, him who sets the goal and uh, says what I need to do, just like in tennis. I mean, you can say some things, what you say, uh, what you think, what you need to do. And after it's your tennis coach who sees it from the outside and tells you, okay, Daniel, I think uh, we need to need to work forehand today because it's going to help you in the next match. And it's the same with mental coach. So it's tennis coach, it's uh, a few guys working on my physical conditions and uh, I have uh, one mental coach. Step by step, maybe I will let somebody else, but at this moment uh, it's enough for me and I feel like I'm improving every day and I want to continue. Another youngster making big strides forward this year is 18-year-old world number 23, Felix Auger-Aliassime, who is among the top seeds in Washington, having already reached three ATP Tour finals this year. I think every day when you train, you think about, you know, where you want to go at the end, you know, what's your final goal. Just that winning feeling, I think once you feel how it is, you know, to win matches and to win tournaments, and that's what keeps me pushing every day. One coach when I was, uh, I think, 13, actually an ex-player, uh, Frederick Niemeyer, I used to, you know, really focus on winning and the results itself. He was the first coach that made me realize that, you know, the important was to 
focus on uh, your level of play and then eventually you'll, you'll win some matches. Yeah. I try to think where I'm going to serve next. Usually the serve in the first shot after my serve. I usually, you know, take always three balls and choose three of them even in practice. So that's a routine I kind of kept. And uh, I usually go for my towel as well, yeah. Probably Roger. <laughs> I mean, uh, he's the best, probably one of the best of all time. And, uh, you know, we always think maybe he doesn't practice a lot or whatever, but had the chance to train with him in the offseason and it's yeah it was probably one of the toughest practices I had in terms of intensity precision and just the way he plays it's, it's just so tough to compete against him yeah. playing Vashik Pospisil in Indian Wells qualified for the main draw for the first time of a Masters and I had a night match against him and when I walked on the court it was pretty crowded and I remember feeling like very nervous and I felt like you know my legs were getting pretty heavy, and somehow I was able to put that away and play a great match. But I remember that was uh, probably the biggest moment in my young career. Yeah. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and ATPTour.com. Get your first serve in. It's an age-old tennis adage at the heart of some career-best performances so far in 2019. An Infosys ATP Beyond the Numbers analysis of first-serve percentage and career-best rankings reveals a striking correlation. Dusan Lajovic led the tour in first-serve percentage in 2019 ahead of Wimbledon, making 68% of his first serves in 26 matches. The 29-year-old Serb achieved a career-high ranking of 23 in April after reaching his first Masters 1000 final in Monte Carlo. That is a remarkable first set efforts from Dusan Lajevic. Guido Pella is second for first serves made this year on 67%. The Argentinian reached a career-high world number 21 in May after his first ATP Tour title in Sao Paulo. Amongst a fascinating top 10 in this category is 25-year-old Jordan Thompson, fifth in 2019 with a 67% rate in 34 matches. The Australian reached a career-high 44 after making the final in Otogenbosch in June. 18-year-old Canadian Felix Auger-Aliassime is 10th in first serves made at 65.7% from 38 matches. His highest ranking so far is 21, after a recent stunning run where he reached the finals in Lyon and Stuttgart and the semi-final at Queen's. Oh, wonderful control on that backhand volley, just guided it towards the corner. Four players from the ATP top 10 are also amongst the best in first serves made in 2019, including world number one Novak Djokovic and world number two Rafa Nadal. Dominic Thiem currently ties his best ranking of fourth while fifth-ranked Alexander Zverev is also on the list. With many of the best at making first serves figuring in the top ten of the rankings, whilst others excelling in this category are enjoying their best-ever seasons, it goes to show first serves are key. Our thanks to ATP Tour Uncovered's Gabriel Clark for that feature. 
And first serves will also be key in the doubles game, which is set to come under the spotlight in Washington with the news that Andy Murray will partner brother Jamie in one of the strongest fields this year. Nick Kyrgios also teaming up with Greek world number six, Stefanos Tsitsipas. That is an intriguing one. It all points to a tough week for the regular doubles teams. Among them, Raven Klaassen and Michael Venus will be looking to go one better than the semi-final appearance they managed in Washington last year and at Wimbledon this year. 36-year-old Klaassen is an interesting character, a double specialist now, but that wasn't always the case, as he told Nick McCarville. The early stuff on sort of pre- and post-knee surgery was definitely singles-focused. Uh, um, I think I think all of us as, as juniors, when you start playing tennis, you, you have these big aspirations of, of being a, a very good singles player. And I had some, some early success, or what I would consider some success given my age, but it, it never really turned into the kind of success that I, that I had envisioned, you know, and... Um, I can't say that the knee surgery would have been the, the, the deciding factor, but it certainly didn't help. You know, I was, I, I, I will say I was fortunate that it happened fairly early in my career, so it gave me more than enough time to get back. I think if, if you have three, three knee surgeries in your later 20s or early 30s, you probably throw in the towel after that, but I missed 23 to 25, and I sort of felt like I still had a, a, a lot of stuff left in the body, but for sure, I always thought... I always thought of myself in the early days as a singles player and fortunately that didn't pan out the way I thought and uh, my skill set kind of translated well into doubles and um, fortunately that's been going a little bit better. So you're only 22 and you had those, or at least the first of those surgeries yeah. and then you played for a few, for a few more years trying to make it in the singles after that, is that right? Yeah, so I, so I, I kind of came back at about, I, I came back the first season but I played really 10 tournaments maybe that you know I couldn't I couldn't put so much load the second season like 2008-9 that really started getting better and I, I worked my way back up to about 200 in singles not not terrible played some I played US Open qualities Australian Open qualities but then I, I, I kind of got to a point at my career when I was entering my later 20s where I had to figure out whether or not being ranked in the 200s was going to be good enough to sustain longevity and and my coach and I Stefan who's here with me um we kind of made a calculated call and said that if I was going to play tennis for many more years, I probably couldn't bank on my knees holding out given the workload required for singles. And we decided to transition over, over to, to focus onto the doubles. And um, I think that was the right decision for me at the time. Yeah, so what's the, uh, you know, the doubles and the singles obviously coexist and there's a great host of doubles names that I think a lot of tennis fans will know. But what's the difference or what's the camaraderie among the doubles guys? Because it seems like uh, a little bit of a tour in and of itself as well. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 actually changing a little bit because for, for a while there it certainly was that way. But how the rules have been have been changed, it, it's sort of the, the, the two are coming back together, you know. And I, and I think um, with it being easier for singles guys to use their rankings to get in, more and more of them are, are, are playing and, and it's almost becoming a little bit closer knit now because you don't have sort of us and them, you know. You have you have you have uh, singles and doubles players coexisting, and I think one of the one of the biggest things now is is just um, you kind of want to look at the product in terms of quality, you know. And 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 what guys are doing on the court now in singles and in doubles is, is really starting to uh, impress me. And I and I think for us with these singles guys playing a lot more doubles, you really have to be on your A game because some of them bring a, a big skill set to the court. You mentioned your coach Stefan, who who you've been with for how long? Oh man, if, I'm gonna throw out a number, but I'm, I'm guessing it. It could be 11 years. Yeah, a good chunk. Uh, pretty much after the knee surgery, when when we started working together, I, he's been with me in my corner all the way along. So he's he's kind of walked this journey with me to try and figure out how to uh, 
how to be successful on the ATP tour. What I was curious too is then Michael Venus, who you've mostly been playing with in the recent past, yeah. he lists a couple other coaches that he works with. So how do you guys work out work that out as a team? Yeah, I think I think with the, as you well know with how the tour goes with the the, the stresses and pressures, you, you kinda try different things and, and, and try to find something at work and for the most part we have an idea of what is required for, for each of us to play well and, and if you can kind of bring those two ideas together with wherever it's coming from with coaching um, you generally try and get the best out of out of each other because uh, players respond to different stuff you know and, I, and and we've tried a few different things but um, he's always sort of had the guys that he trusts in his corner and, and I've had guys that I trust in my corner and then we try and put those expertise together. Last year you and Michael made a run to the final at Wimbledon it was your I believe it was your second final uh, in doubles you reached the Aussie Open final in 2014 with Eric Buderak. Um, what was I, I interviewed you guys? I think once, maybe twice, on that run. But what was that experience like for you to get not only to a Grand Slam final, but to do so at Wimbledon? Oh, I mean, it's it's I I, I look back and then that will be a cherished memory for me, um, with a little bit of a hint of disappointment that I couldn't that I couldn't kind of close that out. But um, if you think back about how the two weeks played out, you know we. I won't say we survived, but we, we got through um, three very tough matches, two of them five sets and one in four sets. And um, when you know how those matches go, you could have gone down in either of those situations. And um, that that uh, that event for us kind of was a culmination of a lot of hard work. And, and we played a great match in the final. And unfortunately, we, we ran into a couple of guys who are also very good tennis players, you know. But yeah, that place to be in the final on center court, something special. You mentioned your knees. I mean, overall right now, you're going to turn 37 later this year. You mentioned BC. Well, now it's, what is it, DC during Carter? Yeah, Your yeah. Little, uh, little son. Um, what keeps you going, uh, essentially, at this point? Because you, you look super fit, and if there's no problems, then you're just going to keep playing some top-level ball? Yeah, good question. You know, uh, my, my wife and I discuss this quite often. Um, like I said, again, we, we've, we've discussed how my uh, career panned out, and I kind of feel because I've only played the ATP tour sort of in my 30s, even though I'm 30, about to be 37, I feel fairly young in terms of ATP. The, the first part of the career was trying to figure out how to win matches and be successful. So my mind's still quite fresh. My body needs constant work. Um, but I, as, as long as, as Celeste is, is kind of with, with uh, the mindset that she has now and allowing me to play, which is, which is key, I will, I will try and squeeze every drop out of my body that I can. And, and um, I got I to gotta tell people that, that she's probably doing the harder part of the work here, you know, running after a little carter all the time. So, um, yeah, as long as I'm playing at a high enough level for them to travel, I'll probably keep doing this as long as I can. Well, as we wrap up, it kind of leads me to my next question, which is, I mean, we see Michael Venus with his, uh, his baby. I see uh, Fernando Verdasco with his kid, um, Fabio Fonini. I mean, player lounges are now becoming also doubling as daycares. Yeah. Um, what, what is that challenge like? And are Celeste and Carter with you all the time on tour? How do you approach that? Well, um, Celeste, Celeste and Carter do about, I'd say, 50 to 60% of the time. She, she uh, runs a little business in South Africa, so she has to get home for that, too. Um, but I think it, it's sort of a, a copycat tour, you know, because the players see someone else uh, playing tennis and, and, and traveling with their family and having success, and, and you start to believe that you could do that, too, because if you asked me this question five years ago, I would have been impossible. But once <laughs> I see other guys doing it, I'm like, well, maybe we can make it work, too. Um, the, the practical challenges are that um, they have a mind of their own. He's not a great sleeper, so kind of have to manage that. And that's why I say uh, 
a lot of our wives on the tour they they pull the heavy load at night you know so they make it possible for us to perform somewhat um, somewhat decent on tour and i i think that's probably due to the fact that as as the sport is growing uh, guys are, are finding ways to stay healthier longer and if you combine like a, a halfway decent body with all the experience of years on tour, you probably end up playing some of your best tennis deeper into your career, you know. If you, if you could chuck this mind I have now onto a 20-year-old body, that would be something special. <laughs> okay, Raven, my last question for you is we obviously have seen the success of Kevin Anderson, your success in doubles. There's a few other South Africans around tour. But where's tennis right now in South, South Africa in general? Yeah, I, I will say in, in, in all the years that I've been playing, this has probably been... For me, the, the last few years, as exciting a time as it's been, you know, in, in my time in tennis South Africa, and um, I think what's 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 happened is you you talk about many different things and how to create good players, but nothing makes someone want to play tennis than seeing someone do well from where you are, you know. And I I think for me growing up, that was Wayne Ferreira. Like you had a guy in the top ten in the world when I was growing up. That's unbelievable, you know. So um, what Kevin has done, you know, um, I've thrown a little bit in the mix there, and and now we have Lloyd Harris coming up. I think that sparks interest because kids are sort of like, yeah, things are not ideal in tennis South Africa, but it's possible. So, so for me, that's sort of an exciting time. And um, hopefully, you know, I can, I can play a few more years and, and then contribute afterwards. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com, this is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. And finally this week, we step outside the court with Pete Staples, a regular on tour who is also the official photographer this week in Washington. Nick McCarville asked Pete how he first got into tennis. Strange enough, I used to be uh, a photographer in Aspen, Colorado for years, ran a ski photo business and did um, skiing. And then I stopped for about 20 years. And in the early, about 2004, my wife moved back to Peace Corps uh, to work in Washington, D.C., and I was unemployed, so she got me a job teaching tennis. And from there, I decided to take up photography again, bought a digital camera, and one day I just happened to be at the Leg Mason, which is now the city open, with a bunch of kids, and I, with my new camera, I was photographing some of the players with on Kids' Day, and the ATP rep came up and wanted some photographs, introduced me to Keely O'Brien, who is now the tournament director of the City Open and she hired me the next year and very strange circumstances. Then I met Mike Baz who was one of the well-known tennis photographers for about 30 years who then took me down to the Miami Open, introduced me to IMG and from there I kept meeting more and more people and uh, really serendipitous that the whole thing happened. So yeah. um, finally met more contacts, more contacts and then uh, it's just grown from there. And how long have you been doing this ATP? Uh, I, I called you an ATP photographer. I don't even know if that's correct to say. Well, I work for the ATP. I'm a, a you know freelancer, so I do about 10, 12 tournaments a year. I do the year-end finals, next-gen finals, since about 2015. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And now you're obviously traveling the world and, and working for um, a fair pay, I would say, probably. Yeah, right? this is great. Yeah, we, <laughs> you know how it is. We work really hard. We had 12, 14-hour days, and sometimes last year I did 49 days straight, worked every day. Hmm. What was that What was that stretch? Uh, Atlanta, um, City Open, where I'm a tournament photographer, and then it was um, Rogers Cup in Toronto, Cincinnati, and then where Nick and I both work at 
at the US Open, I did the qualies all the way through the finals. So that was a seven-week stretch, 49 days. Yeah. So no break. <laughs> no it's break a, at all. No break. And at these all. are long days. It's a huge days. So I usually get to bed about one or two o'clock. Usually, hopefully, sleep for about nine hours, get up about ten, then wander back over, and then generally it's shooting all day long, coming back and forth to to load images. Generally, don't eat lunch, um, and then gorge about six o'clock and then I eat again about one o'clock in the morning which is really bad well and the thing is is you're quite a fit guy and and you get your steps in during the day right I I mean you guys are and you're carrying a lot of equipment yeah about 15,000 on a a long day steps and then you got stairs and then you got heavy equipment plus you're holding a heavy camera up the whole time you're concentrating looking through the viewfinder at the scene, so I generally I don't watch the match very much. I have to really keep an eye on the scoreboard, otherwise I get lost a little bit because I'm so focused on one person. When you have a busy day, how are you planning out your day? What are you focused on? Well, generally I get some notes from Paul McPherson from the ATP, he's my boss, and all the writers will have a plan. Maybe they're doing a story on somebody in particular and they'll tell me to do shoot a particular player or maybe a coach um, so generally we have a rough plan and then that usually goes you know thrown out the window sometime in the day on a busy day <laughs> yeah. which is crazy actually the worst one of the worst parts about this job is actually going between um, um, courts we've got a long distance to travel and the crowds are crazy so which is good which is good for the tennis but good for the tennis but actually being a working reporter or, yeah. or a photographer I hear you just trying to get onto a court you know I'm assuming you say that you've got your tennis teaching background or that you've taught tennis in the past so obviously you've got an uh, interest in the sport itself but what's it like for you to be oftentimes courtside and seeing these matches up close you're obviously working too but there's got to be a little human element to it Um, well especially when you know some of the players um, that's what I like so you can see the emotion you sort of know what they're going through Um, yeah I'm a sort of bit past that now it's a been going on for such a long time I'm not really excited by that being on court but a lot of the work I do when I work for tournaments like the City Open or the Miami Open or the US Open or work for the ATP for the finals I get I can access anywhere and I get to go and photograph with the players where there's no press when they go off sites if they go to like a Miami Heat game I'll go with I've done with Roger Federer and and Novak so to go with them with no other press and follow them around and just be a fly on the wall it's amazing so it sounds like that is would be your favorite part of the job or absolutely yeah yeah to just to have that access and to just uh, be there when they're being themselves yeah and they're not threatened by you because they know you work for the tournament huh tell us about one of those trips either roger or novak or well it was a good one last year at the um at the mercedes cup in stuttgart Wimbledon came over and they had the new towel, the, I think it was the Eight Winds towel and it hadn't been released to the public and they wanted to do a uh, bit of a PR thing and marketing thing for the towel. With and Roger Federer, right? With Roger Federer, so uh, they needed some photographs as well. So we ended up trying to do it outside, but it was raining, so we ended up being in a closet basically. So we had the video guy, the girl from, the, uh, from yeah. Wimbledon and me and basically I had to photograph them tossing the towel to Roger in his plastic container and doing a sequence of photographs of him catching it and then him unwrapping the towel and showing the towel. So after that, they went through and videotaped each one of his wins. So just sitting there, you know, five feet away as he's laughing and recounting each win and being prompted, well, 
who did I play that uh, that year? Or what was the score? And then he'd go through funny things that happened and how that all, you know, it was amazing to be there and hear that. It's really cool just to hear you sort of talk about that instance, but that you appreciate the guys when they can kind of let their guard down a little bit. And we hear about them so often on the radio of, of being these great, you know, heroes on a tennis court. But um, what draws you to them and their personality? And I'm guessing then that lends to the photography, too. I'm not quite sure it does the photography, but it's, um, I guess if you get to know them a little bit, it's when you look, especially off, off court when you're doing things with them and you see the emotion in their eyes when they're talking to kids or, you know, who they really are. It's, I'm so focused on their eyes, you can see their emotion. It's actually, it's amazing to be there and have that access to see that. And when you're actually courtside, if we take it back to your quote-unquote day job, uh, what's the challenge of photographing tennis, just in general, for the photo geeks who are listening in right now? It's, it's not an easy ask to photograph a world-class tennis match. The, the hardest part is where the photo positions are and trying to get good photographs, with, um, especially having lousy backgrounds. We're trying to get a clean background, so the actual player pops out of it, so rather than having you know lots of umpires and chairs and whatever in the background. So trying to find a, a, a good position when they're very limited. Some tournaments just limit you to one spot, and when the light's bad, it's bad. You just have to deal with it. So that's the biggest challenge. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I've worked in a few sort of media hubs where you've got a photo editor and the photographers and a clean shot. What makes up a, a very clean shot? You've got no one in the background. You've got limited yeah, there's lines, a, people. Or le less branding, a position where there's just blank um, uh, back wall where there's no branding. And often you'll see photographs where we get up really high and we shoot down the court so that just the court surface and that's a really clean background. But you have to get very high to do that. And there'd be times, say, when you're working at certain tournaments where they'd want certain branding in shots, is that right? Yeah, so when I'm working for tournaments, like IMG for the Miami Open, or City Open, we're trying to get branding. So often my job is not shooting action, I'm just trying to shoot branding with players in it. So we actually can get images from Getty, so my job is not actually shooting a lot of action. I'm shooting branding, crowd scenes, I'm documenting the tournament so we're shooting where all the signage is so the sponsors know they can prove the sponsors that was signage was there, that there was crowds in front of this, uh, the signs, all the, the booths so we're really documenting and it's a marketing exercise in a way. What I want to do closing up with you is you started your story in Aspen, Colorado I think but people can listen to you and hear that you're not from Colorado. You're actually from Australia. Yeah, right? I'm from Sydney, uh, Manly Beach in Sydney. Yeah. So I still have a house there, but uh, my wife has worked for Peace Corps on and off a long time. She was a country director in Central African Republic, uh, lived in Sierra Leone, Guatemala, and then so I've actually followed her around the world, traping around after her. And now you've sort of carved your own path around the world via tennis. Where have, just name a few of the places other than what you've already talked about that tennis has taken you. Uh, Rio, obviously back to Australia, um, Abu Dhabi, uh, Qatar, um, most places in Europe. Yeah, just about everywhere except <laughs> Asia. That's Haven't done the Asian swing yet. Okay, maybe you'll get the call up for Asia at some point.
<laughs> Lastly, um, favorite part of the job? Uh, sometimes that's a hard question to answer, but if you had to pick one part of your job, what's your favorite? I actually like uh, the people I work with, meeting guys like you and having those same people. We meet up all around the world, and there's a, it's a fabulous thing to have a bunch of people who understand what you do, and when you get to strange places, you've got friendly faces. That's it for this week. I'm Seb Lozier. I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back next week to round up events from Washington and look ahead to the Rogers Cup in Montreal and the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati. Remember, we'll be bringing you live wall-to-wall coverage from all of those events on ATP Tennis Radio, which you can find on TuneIn or via atptour.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Otherwise, that is it for now. Enjoy the tennis. We'll catch you next time. ATP Tennis Radio is bringing you more live radio coverage of the ATP Tour than ever before as the American hardcourt season swings into action. Join us from the 29th of July to the 4th of August as we bring you ball-by-ball coverage every day of the City Open in Washington. And Sasha Zverev defends his title here in Washington. He has defeated Alex Dunanor in straight sets, 6-2, 6-4. He punches the air with both hands. That's followed by full coverage of the Rogers Cup in Montreal and the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati from the 5th to the 18th of August. Big inside out for him and that is it. Game, set, match, championship, Rafa Nadal. The world number one is down on his knees. Absolute delight. And he's skewed and Djokovic makes history. If that isn't enough, we'll also be rebroadcasting US Open Radio's coverage of the US Open from Flushing Meadows from the 26th of August to the 8th of September. Slice of Roundish down the line, great depth on that. Oh, Djokovic has made an outrageous forehand there. In total, that's 35 days of live coverage of the American hardcourt season here on ATP Tennis Radio. 